I'm so glad you're joining me for this episode of Street Soldiers on Winning at Education. I'm your host, Lisa Ebers. It's that time of the year again, a lot of excitement, a lot of anticipation. Some kids have already started school. Others are just getting going now or about to get going. And what we wanted to do with this show is really take a look at where are we with educating our kids, especially now coming out of the pandemic, which is still having lingering effects on children, also the educational structures. So we have a lot to get into. We have an amazing panel to break this all down for us. Joining me is Michael Elson Rooney. He's a reporter with Chalkbeat New York. Michael, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. We appreciate it. Also with us is Dr. Christopher Emden. Uh, Chris is a professor at Columbia University Teachers College. And of course, he looks familiar from his social media, very active. And he's also the founder of Hip Hop Ed and the Science Genius Project and many other uh, projects and programs. He was on the President's Council under President Obama for uh, STEM education and a lot of other things. He's always out in the community and doing some exciting things. So we're going to find out what he has to say. Chris, great to have you with us again. Always glad to be here. Thank you so much. Also joining us is Letitia Hodges. She's the mother of an 11-year-old son in the seventh grade now, and she's going to talk with us about parents and what she's been going through and some advice for parents as well. Letitia, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. We really appreciate it. Uh, Chris, I want to start with you on this. When you look at where we are in terms of education, especially in New York City, what do you see happening in this 2023 school year? I mean, this school year is one for the record books. Uh, we are fully engaging in the post-pandemic sort of uh, life, right? Um, the previous school year, we're sort of teetering on the, on the cusp of it, and now we're fully in that. So, you know, what does post-pandemic education look like now that we're in a space where we're not yet as, you know, not so fearful about what pre-pandemic looked like? We're also dealing with an influx of new populations into New York City who are also going to be coming into the schools. We need to have their needs met. So that's another sort of big issue we have to address. And then for me also, we're coming out of the you know 50th anniversary of hip hop, where there's so much sort of cultural excitement about this cultural phenomenon and all these young folks who are deeply embedded in the culture. And so in what ways are educators and schools going to harness that excitement into the school year is another thing that we need to really focus on. So we got a lot going on culturally, pedagogically, and societally. And this is going to be the school year where we figure it out. Definitely. A lot, a lot, lot happening for sure. Letitia, as a, as a parent, what go, what's going through your mind as you anticipate this year and uh, you know, getting your son the best education that he can possibly get? I'm just looking forward to the community, right? Like his school really has a big community presence and they really foster each other's development and their growth and everything. So I'm just really looking forward to seeing how his peers have grown over the summer and the staff has grown of his school have merged. So one of the um, other middle schools had merged as far as their teachers and just um, different staff members and the scholars. So I'm just really looking to see how they all develop and how they all just work with each other in this new year because, yeah, pandemic is, you know, subsiding for the most part and we're getting back to the actual rigor of the curriculum and just the everyday hustle and bustle of getting to school and enjoying each other's time and actually being in the classroom and not so much virtual learning and everything. So, you know, just just see how the day goes on and how the year comes together. All right. Michael, when you look at the New York City public school system, 
huge mammoth system doing a tremendous job in a lot of cases, a lot of challenges in a lot of other ways as well. What do you see as as, as a couple of the biggest big issues or challenges facing the educators here in the city system? Yes. Yeah, so from, from my conversations with people who work in schools, I think a couple of the big issues on people's minds are, um, number one, the city is rolling out a big initiative to change the way that schools teach reading. Um, so a lot of schools across the city are adopting new curriculum um, that's meant to align more with some of the research about how students learn to read. Um, and that's, you know, a, an enormous issue. And, um, you know, it's one thing to, to say we're changing the curriculum. It's another for teachers to actually learn that and implement it in practice. And so a lot of schools are, you know, really, uh, you know, working through that right now. Um, another big one that, that, you know, I'm hearing about is, you know, the city received billions of dollars in um, one-time federal aid um, during the during the pandemic, and that's funded some really huge initiatives in the city. Um, and, but that money expires at the end of the school year, and so the city's facing some really tough decisions about what programs to continue funding and, you know, how to kind of use a more limited pool of resources going forward. All right. When we come back, I'm going to ask our guests, have children... Do children need different ways of learning? Are they learning differently now because of the time during the pandemic when they were so active on digital means and methods and devices? Or is the way we're teaching still good and still valid and there's still good things that need to happen with that? We'll find out what our panel has to say when we come back. What it do, what it do, man. It's your boy Roscoe Dash. And this is The Street Soldier with Lisa Evers, man. Real issues, real politics, real people. Only on Hot 97. Let's do it. Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers on Winning at Education. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We have an amazing panel to break this all down for us and discuss this topic and explore it as well. Joining me is Michael Elsa Rooney. He's a reporter with Chalkbeat New York. He covers all things education. Also with us is Dr. Chris Emden. He's a professor at Columbia University Teachers College, the founder of Hip Hop Ed and Science Genius, many other programs, and uh, also working on the innovative edge in terms of education. Also with us is Letitia Hodges, She's the mother of an 11-year-old son who's just starting seventh grade and uh, giving us the whole parents' perspective. Thank you all for being with us. We really appreciate it. Letitia, with your son, once he started going back into the classroom after the pandemic, did you find that he was more bored with in-person or was looking at things more attentive to digital devices or like laptops or the iPads or the phone or whatever? Did you notice any, any difference in how he was learning? Yes. So his focus really wasn't there as much um, because they were so happy to see each other, right? So they did a lot of communicating with each other. There was a lot of talking and things like that. So it took away from the learning until they had to use the laptop in the classroom. So that's what I know with his school. They did do that as they were um, bringing them back in. They continued to do the digital learning um, because while they're in the classroom, paper was no longer necessary since they became so acclimated to using the, the laptops and such. So they continued with that. They were reading on the laptops. They were taking tests on the laptop. Um, so it continued with that structure, but being actually in the building. And that didn't leave such a gap in between the learning because it continued to be fluid. Right. They were still on the laptop. They were still on the tablets and everything. 
but they were physically in the building with other children. They weren't isolated anymore in that realm because when the pandemic started, my oldest was actually in seventh grade. So that sh- at, at Democracy Prep as well. So that shift, I see a big difference in that seventh grade year to now I'm anxious to see what this seventh grade year looks like because I don't know what seventh and eighth grade looks like because they were whole, right? So now I get to see what it's like now that they're back in the building and they're physically in school. I'll actually get to see as a parent what middle school looks like from democracy prep. And then um, uh, Dr. Chris Emden, in terms of... Yeah. The- she just had such a good point, Lisa. I just yeah. have things upset because I don't want anybody to miss it. Yeah. You know, I think there's a general misperception that our students have lost focus. Right. Like they can't focus anymore. And in reality, they've not lost focus. They just learn to be able to focus on more than one thing at once. Yeah. It's really interesting. So, that, you know, you said like, my kid is not sitting there just reading a book for three hours anymore. He's doing nine million things. And right, so right. With, a, with a young person who's m- more multi-focused, what's going to be more necessary now is instruction that's multi-focused yeah. and more diverse. Yeah. So a teacher who's teaching in old ways, having you just sitting there, ain't going to capture imagination. So the pedagogy, the science of teaching and learning has to be more sophisticated. Now you got a kid, you have to have the kid reading, going online, utilizing social media, right? Writing and drawing text and doing it all at once. And so, you know, the kids have not regressed. They've actually become more sophisticated and sophisticated babies need sophisticated teaching. So the question then becomes, how is the teaching catching up to the more sophisticated young person who learns the more diverse place? So you think, so you're saying, are you saying, Chris, that they actually learn more during the pandemic and got more a wider range of skills. Absolutely. And people people really got this twisted. They're like, our babies came out of the pandemic and they're dumber. No, they're not. No, Your baby right. came out of the pandemic and they're smarter. Right, they yeah. can do more than one thing at once. They can do five things at once. And and so, you know, a multimodal child, the pandemic birthed multimodal children. Yeah. We now have a desire and a thirst for multimodal instruction. Yeah. And because if the teaching can't catch up, you're going to lose them. And you're going to try to blame them, but it's not them. It's you. Your teaching ain't catch up to the multi the multimodality of the babies. Right. Because even with the screen, they can have multiple screens. So you can have text on one side. You can have the questions on the other side, right? So I'm answering the questions as I'm reading. I'm no longer flipping through the book and I'm, high, I'm no longer notating and highlighting. I can notate and highlight on the screen as well as I'm reading the question. So simultaneously, I'm reading and answering the question, and I can actually be capturing the text and the page numbers. I'm not flipping back through the text to see, you know, where this where this actual quote came from and what's going on. I can actually document it and capture it as I'm going along. Because question one said, what street did the blue dog, you know, walk across on, you know, in the first sentence is the blue dog walked across Victoria Street. Oh, okay, Victoria Street. It's all, you know, streamlined at the side by side. So that gives them more options as to what they can do. Or I can be reading my text over here for one class and I'm doing my math lessons on this side. So instead of closing the screens or pulling out three or four books, I have two different subjects on one screen. And, you know, I'm cross-referencing and doing different things like that. So it actually works. The question is only, what's, it just depends on what's on the screen. You know what I mean? Like, right, you can't be scanning through IG. But if it's in lines of the academic task, the young folks can certainly do it. 
They're equipped to do it, and their brains have developed and increased in their capacity to do it. Okay, but the but that is if the digital devices themselves are available, and also if there's high speed Wi Fi, and if they have the the connectivity to do it. Michael, where do we stand with that? Because there were a lot of we did a lot of stories on the lack of lack of technology and the lack of access just to you know the internet and in our under some of our under resourced communities and the students that really needed it the most. What do you see happening in that area? Yeah, so <laughs> you know when the when COVID first came, there was this big question of of like how are we going to equip kids to to like be able to participate in remote learning and so there is this pretty massive effort to to purchase and deliver like literally hundreds of thousands of iPads, um, and the city chose iPads in part because they could um, they could set them up with with cellular data plans so that families without Wi-Fi could still get internet access. Um, and so you know I, I forget what the final number was, but I'm pretty sure it was over five hundred thousand iPads that were purchased and distributed. Um, so, you know, since then and since in-person schools resumed, there's been some challenges and like, you know, when a kid graduates one school and, and goes to another school, for example, do they keep the iPad? Does the school retain the iPad? So there's some questions of how you track all those devices. Um, a lot of them get broken, as you can imagine, how much is the city going to spend on getting them fixed? Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think... You would think at this point we're close to being one to one, which is you know how they describe districts that there's a device for every kid, but you know often like in some places it's not quite there yet, um, and so you know it, it remains a big challenge, um, and I think one that, that the system is still trying to figure out. What what about on the topic of socialization, Letitia, your son after when he went back with his friends. Do you feel because do you feel that he had to kind of catch up in terms of social skills, especially in that 10, you know, especially in that middle school range? Yes, I can't say he did, but um, I do believe that the school picked up on that, right? They they heard from the parents. I'm, I'm a big advocate in school, um, you know, for the children and everything. I'm very involved. So they have incorporated social emotional learning into their day. Um, they've incorporated uh, downtime blocks into their day where, you know, this 20 minutes, you can just relax, put your head down. You can read a book. You can talk to your friends. You know, we don't have to just be on the curriculum schedule all day long. So these things are incorporated into the day to break up the day to provide you with that distance and that downtime. You can go sit over, you know, a lot of teachers have recreated their classrooms with corners uh, with beanbag chairs and, you know, isolation corner for those that get overstimulated. Um, they reconstructed the way that their children are allowed to leave the classroom when they're feeling overwhelmed and stuff like that. So it no longer becomes a disciplinary tactic when you just get up and walk up the classroom. The teacher knows that that child has that need, right? So as long as the child isn't abusing that need, that child is leaving the classroom on its own with a small signal or such that's given to the teacher, you know, whether it's a finger or two or, you know, a wave or whatever it is, it's something that the child and the teacher knows that, okay, I need a break. I'm overstimulated. Or if the child put their head down or whatever it is, it's not, I'm not being disrespectful. I'm not not paying attention to the lesson. I just need to regroup. Well, those things have become incorporated into the 
Michael, what about you? We're talking about the programs that kind of come to an end or the funding comes comes to an end. Of of those special programs, were there social programs, were there mental health programs involved with that? Yeah, I mean, one of the big ones is that the city hired 500 social workers and guidance counselors using this federal money. And that was a huge additional investment in staff in schools dealing explicitly with, you know, mental health, emotional support. And um, those people are funded by this one-time money. And so, you know, the city's going to have to decide, can it come up with the money to continue paying for those people once this expires next year? And Dr. Chris Emden, in terms of the mental health of students, how important is that? It It is absolutely essential. A child cannot learn if they don't feel like they are at peace, they're calm, they can bring their whole self, and they're not undergoing trauma. And, you know, there's a misperception that, like, like, you know, COVID was traumatic. Once COVID's over, then the trauma's gone. But the after effects of the absence of socialization, the some families have still not yet recovered from the losses financially from losing a job. So those things persist. And so we can't say we have counseling for this one event and don't have them at all. Um, I've been doing some work with a gentleman out of Manhattan College, Dr. Ian Levy. And literally it's about training teachers on techniques that are part of counseling, psychology and therapy. I think sometimes when the teachers come out of schools of education, they learn how to teach and how to write a lesson plan, but they don't learn how to deal with a child who's having a tough day. Right? They don't know how to deal with a right. child who's having some emotional trauma. So part of the work that we've been doing is saying, how do we create what we call edu-counselors? So folks who are trained as teachers, but also develop techniques on how to address the emotional needs of children. Um, I think that's something that we're going to have to think about you know, going forward. You know, What kind of professional development are my teachers getting so that when a child is going through something, you don't send them to suspension or you don't right. say, oh, this child is acting up but have the wherewithal to create the mechanism to have that child be able to sort of either self-correct or get the needs that they need so they can engage well academically. So social emotional traumas are not going away, but we should be thinking about ways that we can train the folks that we have in place. I'm not saying anybody replaces a counselor. You don't replace a therapist. You just don't. You need them. But how do we train teachers to be able to develop the techniques in that moment so they can work with children? And that's going to be something that we need to work on, you know, as we are right now. Um, there are projects that we, like our project with designing classrooms is a response to just that. How do you create a classroom environment where a child does not feel triggered by the bars on the windows <laughs> or to sit in there and it feels like a prison? So how do you create the environment in the class to help a child to be able to be sort of more social, emotionally comfortable in a learning space? Uh, you know, these are some of the things that we need to focus on. All right. So we're going to take a short break. Uh, when we come back, we're going to talk a little bit about some of the outside influences that are affecting the schools and how kids can deal with them and parents can deal with them as well. I'm Lisa Evers, your host for Street Soldiers. We'll be right back. Yo, what up, people? This is Common, and this is the Street Soldiers with Lisa Evers. Real issues, real politics, and real people. Only on Hot 9-7. The people, baby. Welcome back to this episode of Street Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're talking about winning at education. There's been a lot of stories, some positive, some negative, just a lot of concern about this particular school year with everything going on, and also a lot of families facing economic challenges as well and the costs associated with it. So we have a panel, we're talking about where we're at, what people can do, what parents can do in particular to support their children so that they can get the education that they need now even more than ever in order to succeed at life. Um, joining us for this conversation is Michael Elson Rooney. He's a reporter with Chalkbeat New York. Also with us is Dr. Chris Emden. He's a professor at Columbia University Teachers College and the founder of Hip Hop Ed and Science Genius. 
Also with us is Letitia Hodges. She's the mother of uh, two sons in the school system. Uh, Letitia, thank you so much for being with us. We appreciate it. Thank you. So in, t in terms of the, one of the things that happened in the, the, the last school year was that there were a lot of incidents go get of students getting into the schools and getting out of the schools, especially in middle schools and high school and violence. There were some lives that were lost. There were attempts by the police department and the school safety agents to create these safe corridors. But as with so many things in, uh, you know, in the city and elsewhere right now, there just wasn't the funding, the manpower, the budgets in order to to make this a reality. Michael, in terms of what the schools are doing to deal with that reality, because how can a kid learn if they have to worry about whether or not they're going to get shot or get attacked or get jumped by the time they get to the front door of that school? Yeah, I mean, I think this has been a, a really challenging issue for the school system to address because on the one hand, you know, they, they want to make it clear and a lot of students I've talked to want to make it clear that often inside their schools, they do not feel unsafe. They actually feel very supported and safe. Um, but, you know, I, like, obviously there's there's real issues if, if you have someone showing up with a weapon to school, um, it, you know, even if the reason they're carrying that weapon is to protect themselves on the commute. And so how do you kind of balance those two realities? And um, so the big initiatives that the, the DOE has launched so far, um, there's one called Project Pivot, where um, schools are partnering with various community organizations that are coming in and trying to do some more kind of preemptive work with students who are, you know, more at risk for, um, you know, for, for getting caught up in that stuff outside of school. Um, and that initiative is expanding this year. Um, there's also a big decision last year to um, equip schools with a door locking mechanism um, for the front door, um, which was actually not in place at, at many schools. Um, so the, the front doors will be locked and school safety agents are now buzzing people in through an intercom. And so that that funding was approved for that last year. That's continuing to roll out, um, you know, and, and there was some debate about that among people, whether, whether, you know, this is, what are some of the trade-offs of that? Does it make the building feel less accessible to, to parents, to community members? But, you know, what are the advantages in terms of security? Um, so, um, you know, that's, I think, an ongoing question. Letitia, what about this is safety? And explain for us, Democracy Prep, is that a charter school? Is it a public school? Well, what is that? Well, it's a Democracy Prep Harlem Middle Charter School. Uh, it is a, the the big thing about safety when it comes to that school specifically is that it's a standalone school. So it's not, you know, it has no nobody else in there, just themselves. And they do have the intercom and everything on the front glass doors and everything. So, you know, you see that um, and everything like that. They also have the policy for parents can come in and sit, do a day with your kid. You can sit in class with your kid. So it's really an open door policy. Uh, they're very safe when it comes to the, the students and stuff. They actually walk them off the block. They, you know, walk a block or two in either the students, um, which helps the children, um, which helps the children feel a little safer because they're getting to their bus stops, their train stations with an escort of such. As a group, you know, they encourage to go straight home. Um, but I think one of the big things that Democracy Prep did also last year specifically was they had an after-school program. A lot of charter schools do not have after-school programs. 
for um, their students. So they had an after school program that was um, a, a, co a cohesive program in the sense that it, it catered to all of the middle schools, but it um, it linked at the actual school my son attends, the standalone school. So they got to they got that extra security when you know um, after school was over, the staff would do the same thing, walk with them if necessary or whatever it was. But it gave reassurance to parents who still have to be at work when they get out of school and stuff like that. So now we have a later time that we're able to pick them up or for them to travel to their next destination, whether it be home or uh, uh, after school, like, you know, after after school activity at that point. Um, but the security, the security is very, very uh, safe and they do put the students first. So they now have uh, like a contracted um, security guard. They don't have safety agents in the school, but there are um, security, there's teams, their doors are locked and stuff. And there aren't bars particularly on the windows. So they have, you know, their windows are open and stuff as far as the, the blinds and stuff like that. So the kids are able to see the neighborhood and stuff. So everybody gets a different atmosphere, a different wide land, right? A different atmosphere. Uh, Dr. Chris, I'm doing what about that? Because the DOE schools, they do have, with the school safety agents, as much as possible, there have been some where they, they create these safe corridors, they link, they have a, a NYPD contact. If something gets really crazy, they, they help to give them an escort to this train station. But after being in school for that many hours, it's like a lot of times people want to, you know, kids want to hang out a little bit. Yeah, they want to hang out. Also, if you stay after school, you still got to go home. You go home when it gets dark, you know, things start popping off. I, and I think, you know, I, I really appreciate what um, Letitia's school is doing and what they're working on. Shout out to Princess Lyles, who works with that organization, who just Absolutely. is really innovative in the ways that she thinks about the work uh, engaging community. But I think I think the DOE has done a phenomenal job with the concept of Project Pivot. And I think it requires an expansion and an acceleration. Um. Project Pivot is about, yo, like, if we hook up with a, with a community-based organization, then a community-based organization is in the community, and then th that organization can support us in helping to support young people. So conceptually, yeah. that makes a lot of sense. The thing is this, not everybody who's really about that life is engaging with the CBO to begin with. So yeah. they're, they're addressing kids who are in the school who Project Pivot can sort of, like, expand out the relationship with. What I would argue is, you, the people who are getting in trouble and causing trouble for our babies in schools are actually the kids who just recently left school. It's the kids who recently dropped out, the kids who had a bad experience in school. And so we have to do a better job at not tracking in a way of like following them around, but looking at the experiences of young people who have been unsuccessful in our schools and in yeah. finding ways to bring them back in the fold. If I have a kid who did not have a good experience in my school and drops out of school, they're going to go in the hood and they're going to cause problems. If the school maintains a relationship with that young person and brings them back in to be a facilitator of the conversation, then the nature of the dialogue remains the same. So, you know, you can't be like, it's us against the enemy, right? This, this is what the kids do. It's, it's me against the ops. Well, you got to understand who your real ops are. And, and, and so you got you to gotta be able to have those kind of conversations with the kids who have left schools. So that's one thing. The second thing with the initiative of sort of like locking out the doors and buzzing people in, I, I think it makes sense if you're looking only intellectually. But part of the challenge that we have in New York City is the emotional effects of, one, you got to walk through a metal detector to get in. Then people got to get buzzed in to get in. Then the class and the school look like a prison. And so what, what you're going to have in that, in that situation is young people who are responding to the structures. So I think that you can have a buzz in 
if you have a, a glass plane that's inviting. Yeah. But if it adds to a larger culture that looks like it's prison, then it won't work. So you can't just say, let's just put the lots in all the schools. You've got to be smart and say, well, in what school will that work? Because the design of the school can facilitate that and doesn't look like I'm, I'm attacking the kids or making them feel like they're the enemy. So you can't do a carte blanche, writ large, you know, Joe Clark, put a bars in the windows <laughs> approach uh, and think that's going to address the violence. It has to be a little bit more sophisticated. I've used that term a, a couple of times. It has to be a little bit more nuanced and it has to involve the kids in the community that don't go to the school and bring them in the fold. Well, like, you know, they are not the opposition. They can be the one who supports you in creating this issue. So, again, I don't want to hate on DOE. I think Project Pivot makes sense. I think expand it, go beyond CBOs and reach out to individuals. I think the idea of putting the locks on all the doors makes no sense at all because you're just going to reinforce the idea that of us against them. What about metal? Uh, Michael, what, what about that pro Project Pivot? And also the last year there was a debate that seems to be happening every year about metal detectors at the fronts of some of the high schools in, in particular because of all the weapons that were that were confiscated because of incidents that happened where do you where do things stand with that well um so <laughs> or project i think it's a tough one man <laughs> um well let me just so chris chris made some good points on on project pivot and it just made me think also one of the things we've seen in new york city and across the country is that in the wake of, of you know, in-person learning returning, chronic absenteeism has really spiked. And so that's a big challenge for schools is how do you stay in touch with kids who are not showing up to school? And how are you making sure that those kids are remaining engaged? And um, in terms of the metal detectors, you're right, that's been kind of a perennial debate. Um, there's actually very little transparency because the NYPD is you know overseas which schools get metal detectors? It's, um, we still don't know. We don't have a comprehensive list of what those schools are. Um, you know, many high schools have them. Um, you've also seen some of the kind of pop-up scanning that happens after there's an incident where there's a surprise, um, you know, surprise uh, visit from scan with the wand. And, you know, and, and we've seen some stories in the media and, um, you know, I've, I've written those stories about the numbers of, of items that are, are getting turned up in, in those scanning. But I think the thing to really understand is that so many of those items are things that students are carrying to make themselves feel safe on their commutes. Uh, and cool. Cool. the largest, the largest item is classified as, I believe that the term NYPD uses is like miscellaneous and includes things like pepper spray, which young women are carrying on the subways. Um, and, you know, so uh, there are certainly people, students, parents who support having metal detectors, but there are also a lot of students I've talked to who, you know, point to the real downsides, the long lines that they're, they're you know, arriving late to class, they're getting things like hair picks, you know, taken away or girls with, you know, wires in their in their bras are getting flagged by the metal detectors like that right. stuff happens and um so that can you know be a really bad way to start your day for a lot of kids um the worst way to start your day you know what i mean right. and, and here's a here's another piece of it too that i want to make clear because I, I love what you're what you're describing michael i think and this is what we oftentimes miss is sometimes sometimes if something happens and it's the hood hood people feel comfortable with the metal detectors but we also have to emphasize how it's being done. Y'all, I've witnessed this. Like, look, 
if I have to have a metal detector, I, I'd rather they not be there. I understand why they're there. I also understand that it's also a line out the door and it's raining and it's cold outside and you got to go one by one. And the security officers have not have not been trained on how to greet students and how to welcome them. Right. Because you can make an uncomfortable experience be one that's at least handleable. Right. Oh, yeah. I'm going to you and give the process. your phone right there. Right. Right. Lisa, you know, I, mean, and I, I didn't think that we have not gotten to that point yet of, of, of that part, you know? Um, also, just to make it clear, because people are like, the kids nowadays are just so violent. Listen, I went to high school in New York City in the 90s. It wasn't nothing more crazy than when the Deceps was running through the city with hammers in the works. Like, so let's also not hyper-glorify the idea that these kids are just so much more violent with so much no, more. What they're, and they're, I remember as a high school student, but there's a lot more guns. Right. I mean, there's there a lot more right. guns, but the but the pers the kids are not worse. The no, kids I are not worse. I think they're just, I the think conditions. They're, the conditions. Right. You know what I mean? The conditions. The conditions are moving them to a place where they feel this need, and we're not doing anything to address that. Exactly. They feel like they're on their well, own. There's nobody that can protect them. That's what I'm right. So Lisa, I wanted to go ahead. Lisa, I wanted to make a I wanted to make a connecting point for what everyone had to say. Um, last we talked about last safety and different things like that with the children. Last last school year, um, the child Alberry that was one of those children found in the river. Um, back oh, where the child was May or so. Right, he was actually in my son's class. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh he's been he was in my son's class every year since the third grade. So my son had an actual connection to him. The way democracy prep handled that was absolutely phenomenal, along with the community partners that we were talking about. NYPD showed up to the visuals. Uh, you know, they were there. They were working with everyone. They did social, emotional, different techniques in different classes. They canceled classes for, you know, a few days. They canceled school actually for an actual day where they didn't have any school. So... Those are just the different things that talk about the community overall, because the school in itself is a community, right? And, and one of the community children had an incident. There was a mishap and, you know, it turned into a death. And that whole ordeal spoke volumes just in how NYPD showed up. I remember going to the visual and I had, um, we were basically like triple parking on the street. And I had said to one of the, the police officers, please don't give me a ticket. I'm double parked, but, you know, we're coming here for the." And they're like, no, we're not here for that. So, you know, they didn't, it, it wasn't about what else my job entailed. It was about this actual incident, this actual tragedy, and how we're here to support this school community, this family. And, you know, nobody received parking tickets and people were parked on the sidewalk. It was just, you know, those small things. And I mention it more so because those are things that set us apart from the overall community, right? And just the the officer in that sector was there specifically for Alpha and his family, in his school family, right? It wasn't, okay, well, you know, cars, you can't be double parked, it's too many people, it's this, it's that. We, they weren't there to police those small things. They were there just to show face and to say that we are a part of this community. So, you know, Teachers from that were no longer with the network came by to see, you know, and everything. So the community really is big because myself, even when I'm in the community and I see children that I know don't live over here or should be long gone, I'll reach out to the parent when I see them. Oh, you know, hey, I saw your child on this street and everything. It was after school or whatever have you. And I think those are the things that make the partnership perfect in the sense that 
a gift partnership, right? My sweet. And know that I met you through school. I see you in the morning when you're dropping off your child. I don't know you. I don't really know your name, but I'm going to look out for your child when I'm navigating the community, just as well as I hope you're doing for me. So those CBOs that, um, you know, that Chris spoke about happens to have those same abilities, right? You're walking past this agency that only comes to your school once a week to give yoga on Fridays or whatever have you. But they see you on a Tuesday, but they know that you go to school. They can reach out to the principal and say, hey, I saw a few of your children, you know, on this block. I don't know if they live right. here, but I'm going to block it. Right, exactly. Right. You know, this, 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 this block is not the best of blocks, so just give you the heads up, you know, because we partner with you. So I think those are the things that speaks to the community and speaks to how our children are being prepared and being safe throughout their navigating the the systems home transit and all you know all of these different all things, these different but... things where there's there's so much so much power michael anything what horizon in this area that you think will, will be happening this year that you're going to be keeping your eye on um the project pivot or the you well so project pivot is expanding um you know to bring it to more schools i think you know there are some questions about what exactly the outcomes that that project is is looking for um, and how you measure the success of that. Um, and then I will be interested to see how this um, door locking initiative rolls out and how it's actually, you know, landing in, in schools and among educators and families. And how people feel about that. All right, we're going to take a short break. This is Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We'll be back right after this. What it do this Kevin Gates and right now I'm kicking it with Lisa Evers. Welcome back to this episode of Speed Soldiers. I'm your host, Lisa Evers. We're talking about winning at education, a new school year, a lot of new challenges, but a lot of progress as well. And let's just have faith in our kids and our educators and our parents that we got through the pandemic, we got through a lot, and now it's going to be a whole new thing that's so much better than what came before. So that's my goal and my hope. Uh, joining us for this conversation is Michael Elsa Rooney. He's a reporter with Chalkbeat New York. Also with us is Dr. Chris Emden. He's a professor at the Columbia University Teachers College and founder of Hip Hop Ed and Science Genius. Also with us, Letitia Hodges. She's the parent of two cha two children, um, two boys, and uh, she's fighting for them too and been fighting for them. Letitia, now your kids, your both your sons are at are at Democracy. Well, well, it's a daughter. I have a daughter. Oh, I'm sorry, one daughter. Okay, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Um, my daughter, my oldest, she no longer attends Democracy Prep, but she did attend Democracy Prep up into um the ninth grade um so oh, yes you have okay so let me do that try to cut you off because we're, we're just up against the clock here so it's a charter school but it's also under the public school system is that how it works yes yes it's no tuition or anything like that um it's you apply via the internet the fulfillment app and um it's by lottery more so at the how you're um, chosen, and then they have the sibling preference. So once you get one of your children in, more than likely your other children will be able to follow um, in the footsteps of their older sibling. And what what difference do you think it's made for your daughter? You know that it made for your daughter and for your son who's there now. So for so for me, I you know I always tell parents to choose a school that matches your ideology at in your personal life and at home, like how your home structure is, such because. The academics are going to be the academic, right? The, the the school structure is going to be the school structure. But you want to make sure that the 
school you're sending your child to has the resources to support them, whether they have an IEP or whether they have any behavioral issues or any social emotional concerns, whether, you know, they wear uniform or not, whether they're strict in that aspect, whether they have after school, um, because that may meet your working needs, um, you know, whether they have a standing half day, because like my son, they have a standing half day on Fridays. So you have to ensure that, you know, you meet the needs, you know, you meet your children's needs in that regard because they get out of school at one o'clock. So if you're still working, you have to ensure that there's childcare or there's some type of aftercare or your children have a, um, you know, a secure plan in the afternoon to meet that. So it works for me because um, democracy prep focuses a lot on different cultural aspects. Like it's one of the only schools that I'm aware of, especially that does Korean as a standard language for their children. Um, you know, most schools do Spanish, French, um, Italian, but they do Korean. They do a lot of cultural trips, especially in the high school where they do South Africa, Korea, Ecuador, I know they've done Puerto Rico. For the um, middle school children, they do um, like D.C., um, they've done Boston, Canada, different things that a lot of our children may not have experienced on their own or within their own family. They get this cultural setting within the school. And they get that with uh, the school. No, and that and that's yeah. that's fantastic. Yeah. In, ter- in terms of the the, char- the charter schools operating w- within the DOE, where do things stand with them? Well, so charter schools um, are publicly funded and and tuition free, but they're not operated by the DOE. They're operated by you know uh, outside organizations and networks. Um, so the way things stand is you know essentially um, there's a cap set by the state. On the number of charters allowed to exist in in New York City, um, and you know the we I believe haven't um, quite reached that cap. There's you know some uh, schools or, or let me let me go back on that. We're 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 close to that cap. Some schools are still allowed to expand in terms of grades, but they're not adding new charter schools at this point. Um, and there have been some efforts to expand that cap, but um, I think there's very little appetite for that in the state legislature. At, at that point, and Chris, go ahead. Yeah, I, I just want to make this one point because I think it's important for for our, for our audience to be sort of aware of the landscape. Um, I think that that Leticia, the school that she described, is is a school that works well for her, for her children, and may work well for a right. lot of young people. Right. I also want to make clear that I have attended, visited charter schools within New York City that are that are positioned as alternatives to the DOE, and they're not popping. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't do right by young people as well. So I think Absolutely. I think it's important for the audience to know that this is a school that does well for her children and may work well in many yeah. ways. It's not necessarily the alternative. There are right. schools within the DOE that do a phenomenal job by children. And oftentimes, uh, you know, the growth of some charters that is at the expense of other schools oh, yeah. who are not given the, op- the opportunity and resources to grow. With that said, what Leticia said was spot on. You as a parent have to know your child yeah. And place them in the place that works best for that child, and and when you when you when you do that, they thrive. And right. that kind of level of like knowing your child and knowing the space is is very very important. Yes, absolutely. And, and Chris, in terms of advice for parents that so that they can augment the education their kids are getting, any, yes. any tips for them. The first thing that I always say to parents is this: you're sending a child to a school, you are the boss. Absolutely. Um, not be a 
afraid to show up to a school, make an appointment with the principal, make an appointment with the AP, make an appointment with the parent coordinator. I think oftentimes we send our babies to school and then we say, Whoo, the school got it. Nope, the school ain't got it. They That's only right. got it to the extent to which you are engaged in what's going Absolutely. on. And, and it's not a imposition. You have a right. You have a Absolutely. right to demand the conditions in a school, Absolutely. public charter or otherwise, that meet the needs of your children. That's number one. Number two, this work don't get done with our community. Absolutely. So if you find in your network that there's something lacking, find somebody that can supplement. If you need somebody like, listen, which I, a barter system is why communities of color have always survived in the most challenging circumstances in history. So you ain't got to be at this on your own. If you see a parent that's after, after school and you can't make it after school, listen, you watch my baby after school and I'll pull up in the morning and bring your baby to school. Um, and so it's in the construction of that out of school community that we make sure that our children are covered in love and care. And then you know, the last thing I would say is this. Do not reinforce negative stereotypes about your babies. I don't care what a teacher says. I don't care what a school board says. I don't care what an article says. Our children have the capacity to learn, the desire to learn, and the intellectual ability to learn. And so when somebody uses that negative talk about your child, you have to always counter that. Sometimes the kids end up making poor decisions because they don't have enough people in their lives telling them about, about their beauty and their potential and their capacity. So don't ever underestimate the words you wrap your child in before they leave your house. When you tell them they're great, they're excellent, they're a good kid, and they're going to perform magic in the school today, and that's the magic they leave the building, the house with, that's the magic yeah. they enter into the school with. And so never underestimate the power of positive self-talk to our children before they leave your house in the morning. And if we address that's those things, we're going to be all right, in the words of Kendrick Lamar. I think even that's for cool. positive self-talk, Letitia, I'm going to give you the last word as the, as the parent. No. Because I was just saying that, you know, what Chris is saying is absolutely correct, right? So for myself, at the beginning of the school year, I send an email apologizing to the teacher, the principal, the staff, and even when I meet them in person, because I'm an overwhelming parent. And I'm letting them know that I'm going to be overwhelming. And I'm apologizing in advance because while you may have 300 children in your school, I only have one. And I'm going to be their biggest advocate. I am going to be here for any and everything that is necessary. So I understand that you may go home to your own children, but when I send you an email, I expect the response. When I send you a text, I expect the response. When I show up, I expect the response. It may not be in that moment, but within a good enough time frame and a time frame that we agree upon, I do expect the response because I can only advocate for my children when I am in the know of what is going on with my child at that time. So you have to communicate and partner with the school and with the community like Chris had to ensure that your children are going to be their best self. All right. Well, on that note, I want to thank you all for being with us for this episode of Speech Soldiers. Let's uh, let's hope this is the best year yet so far for all the kids. A lot of great information in this show. Uh, thank you all for being with us. Um, Michael Elsa Rooney, Letitia Hodges, Dr. Chris Emden, and thank you for joining us for this episode of Speech Soldiers. I'm Lisa Evers. Remember, use your mind. It's your best weapon. I hope it's your only weapon. Let's push for peace, love, and justice for all.